Judges uh, 11, 29 to 39. Then the Spirit of the Lord came on Jephthah. He crossed Gilead and Manasseh, passed through Mizpah of Gilead, and from there he advanced against the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. If you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's, and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. Then Jephthah went over to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into his hands. He devastated 20 towns from Aror to the vicinity of Mineth, as far as Abel Karamim. Thus Israel subdued Ammon. When Jephthah returned to his home in Mizpah, who should come out to meet him but his daughter, dancing to the sound of timbrels? She was an only child. Except for her, he had neither son nor daughter. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and he cried, Oh no, my daughter, you've brought me down and I am devastated. I have made a vow to the Lord that I cannot break. My father, she replied, you've given your word to the Lord. Do to me just as you promised, now that the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the Ammonites. But grant me this one request, she said. Give me two months to roam the hills and weep with my friends, because I will never marry. You may go, he said, and he let her go for two months. She and her friends went into the hills and wept because she would never marry. After the two months, she returned to her father, and he did to her as he had vowed, and she was a virgin. This is the word of the Lord. Well, that's a fun story, isn't it? Uh, it's been almost 30 years ago now that I was working as a counselor in Summit County Jail uh, in Akron, Ohio. And one day on the job, I got a call from one of the deputies in the jail. And they called me and told me that there was an inmate that had been out in a fight out on the range, and the range was kind of the open area on a cell block where inmates would congregate. said he'd gotten a fight out on the range and that he was now in lockdown in his cell and he was still pretty upset. He asked me if I would come talk to him, see if I could calm him down. So I went down and they let me into his cell and I sat there in his cell and talked to him for a while and he explained what had happened. And he told me that uh, he had recently become a Christian, that he accepted Christ through the chaplaincy ministry in the jail, uh, seemed sincere in his faith. And he said that one of the things he had learned was that he wasn't supposed to use the name of Jesus in vain. And, and he understood that. And so when he was out on the range sitting there watching TV, one of the other inmates was using the name of Jesus in vain. And he told him that you're not supposed to do that. Stop that. Felt like that was the right thing to tell him. Well, this guy didn't appreciate being told how to talk, and so he started doing it again and again and again. And he decided it was his Christian responsibility to make him stop. And so he beat him up and made him stop. Deputies didn't take so kindly to that, so they locked him in his cell. And when I got to him, he was really upset. And part of what he was upset about was the injustice of it. It was this guy was the one who was wrong. He was using the name of the Lord in vain, and I had to beat him up. And as we sat there and talked, what some of the other things that were interesting was he knew he wasn't supposed to use the name of the Lord in vain, but he had no problem with any other language. It was part of his description. It was very colorful as we were sitting there having this conversation. 
And the other thing was that the wall in front of me as we were talking was covered in hand-drawn pictures. And these were all pornographic pictures that were all in front of me. And it was common in the jail because they weren't allowed to get magazines and printed pictures like that into the jail that inmates who had artistic talents would draw these pictures and trade them for cigarettes and uh, snack food and things like that. And this man had obviously given up a lot of cigarettes because his wall was covered with these hand-drawn pictures. And again, he seemed to have no problem with that. That all seemed acceptable, but this guy using the name of the Lord in vain was not, and it was his responsibility to beat him up. Well, as I began talking with this man and interacting with him, one of the things I quickly found out was I think he had a sincere faith. I think his faith was truly sincere, but incredibly immature. He honestly didn't know much about the God whom he was serving. He just didn't understand much about him. And so as we began to talk through the weeks, as he wanted to continue talking with me, um, what I found was that he was uh, very willing to learn he was, he was like a sponge. He wanted to soak up everything that I would tell him. Uh, he was one of the most enjoyable counseling sessions that I had every week because he so wanted to learn and he so wanted to grow, and he did. He did learn and he did grow. Uh, he was sincere, but in some ways he was sincerely wrong about a lot of things. I tell you that story because that story came to mind as I um, read the story of Jephthah. It's one of the most troubling stories in Scripture. Most commentators will talk about it. It is a difficult story. Uh, it is a hard one to make sense of. It's not hard to make sense of just because of what Jephthah did, but it's hard to make sense of because Jephthah is then later included in Hebrews 11. He is commended for his faith. This man who it appears he sacrificed his daughter to the Lord is later commended for his faith. How in the world do we make sense of that? Well, let's dig into the story a little bit and see if we can't make sense of it. Uh, as we've told you before, the, the book of Judges is a book where there's this cycle that the people of Israel go round and round again and again in. Uh, the last couple of weeks, Josiah and I both talked about that. It's this cycle where you will see them in some ways. I, I, a couple of weeks ago, said a good way to think about it is the A, B, C, D, E of uh, the book of Judges. A, they fall into apostasy. In some way, they turn to false gods. And one of the other things that's, that's true in this cycle in the book of Judges, it not only just goes round and round again and again, but it kind of keeps spiraling down. As it goes round and round, it gets worse and worse through the book of Judges. So as we get to this story, one of the things you see is they not only were turning to foreign gods, they were turning to foreign gods of just about every neighbor they had. I mean, it's a long list of their neighbors whose gods they are now worshiping. And then, the, so that's the A, the apostasy. And then the B is, because of their apostasy, because they've turned away from the true God, God turns them over to bondage at the hands of some oppressors, of the neighbors whose gods they're actually worshiping. In this case, it was the Ammonites and the Philistines. He turns them over to them and allows them to be their oppressors. And this is a harsh oppression of bondage that they were under. We're told that they shattered and they crushed them. It was 18 years of this very harsh oppression that they had to live under. And then as the cycle goes on, they cry out to the Lord as they did again and again. And this time they cry out to the Lord and they say, Lord, you know, this is so hard. God, will you rescue us from it? Will you, we've done wrong. We've turned to the false gods. Will you save us? But this time's a little different because God doesn't immediately say yes to them. This time God says to them, I have rescued you again and again. 
and you keep returning to your false gods. So maybe you need to go to those false gods and ask them to rescue you. Turn to the gods you've been worshiping and see if they'll rescue you. And then they come back to him again. And this time they say, no, God, we understand it. We understand we don't deserve anything from you. But God, will you rescue us? And this time it says they put away their false gods and they began to serve the Lord. So it seems the first time they hadn't put away their false gods. So the first time they were just trying to add Yahweh, the God of Israel, to their list of gods. This time they understood. This time they put away their false gods and they turned to God. And they asked him if he will deliver them. And then we come to the D. The deliverance or sending a deliverer begins. But in this case, again, a little bit different. Because we're told in chapter 10 and verse 16 of Judges that God could bear their misery no more. That God listened to their cry. He felt their pain. He could bear their misery no more. And it seems that this deliverance is beginning here. But what's a little different in this story is, in this case, we're never really told that God raises up the deliverer, as we're told in other stories. In this case, the, the deliverer, who is eventually Jephthah, who God does bless, we're not really told he called him up. Matter of fact, the story goes on. It seems like they're not, people of Israel aren't really even sure how God's going to respond to their plea. They seem to kind of turn to plan B. They've asked God to rescue them. And now they quickly turn to, we need to go find someone to lead our army against the Ammonites. We need to find our own deliverer. So they put out this plea. Anybody who will come and lead our army against the Ammonites, you will become the head of the people of Gilead. And the people of Gilead were the tribes of, they believe, of Gad and Reuben and part of Manasseh, so this portion of Israel. You will be the leader of them if you will lead our army against the Ammonites. And they put this call out, and apparently nobody responds. Nobody comes forward for it. And so then, they finally turn to this person named Jephthah, the one who will become the deliverer. Here's what we know about Jephthah. Jephthah was the son of a prostitute, um, but Jephthah's father took him in and raised him with his real wife. So he was raised with his dad and his stepmom, and his dad and his stepmom had a lot of sons, And so he was raised with a lot of half-brothers. But we're told in the story these half-brothers never accepted him, seemed to treat him pretty horribly. And eventually they drove him out of the house. And he took off to this nearby land called Tob to live there. And then we also know about Jephthah that he seemed to be kind of a natural leader. Because as he goes to this other land, other people kind of congregate around and begin following him. Uh, Scripture describes them as adventurers, in the NIV, they're adventurers, and we kind of think they're guys who like rock climbing and whitewater rafting or something. But the, the word there could also be interpreted worthless men or empty men. And what they probably were were a pretty shady crowd, bandits, people who congregated around him, and they were doing some unsavory things. But he was a leader. And then we're also told he was a mighty warrior. And it, and it kind of all makes sense, doesn't it? This was a guy who had to fend for himself had to handle things on his own, had to take care of life for himself. Nobody else was there for him. He was probably a pretty tough guy, but had some real kind of strong leadership qualities that he applied to take care of himself, and some others joined him in it. Well, then the story goes on. And as the story goes on, they reach out to Jephthah, the people of Gilead, and they ask him if he will lead their army, because they at least recognize this guy knows how to fight. 
He's a tough guy, and he can lead our army. Well, Jephthah kind of reminds them, you know, I wasn't good enough for you before. Uh, before you all didn't want me, but now you do. And so he, he wants to make sure this deal they're offering is really going to be applied to him. So in chapter 11 and verse 9, we read, Jephthah answered them and said, Suppose you take me back to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gives them to me. Will I really be your head? The elders of Gilead replied, The Lord is our witness. We will certainly do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and commander over them, and he repeated all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. So, again, we have this situation where he's saying, you know, I want to make sure, I want, to, I want you guys to say it here, that you're really going to guarantee I'll be your leader if I follow through on this. Then he also says, I, and matter of fact, let's go back to Mizpah, to the sanctuary, and I want you to make that commitment there before God. You see some sign of faith in Jephthah. You see that there's a sense where he kind of understands that if this victory is going to happen, God's going to bring it. You see something in him that you, you kind of recognize in Jephthah that, um, that he knows if this vow is made before God, this is a, this is a real vow, that, that God, making a vow before God is a really important thing. So he at least seems to understand that God exists, that victory will come only through the hands of God, that God is important. He at least seems to understand those things in what he's saying. But we also see that Jephthah is a pretty good negotiator. He knows how to, how to negotiate things. Uh, he makes sure Israel is going to come through, and he secures the deal there. And then he turns to the Ammonite king, now that he's been made leader. And he sends a message to this Ammonite king, their occupier. And he says to him, you know, why have you done this? Why have you attacked us? Why do you occupy our land? And the Ammonite king responds and says, because honestly, it was really our land. Because when Israel came up out of Egypt and came back and returned to this land, you took it from us. It's ours. So we're taking it back. And Jephthah at least knows enough about Israel's history to be able to say, yeah, that's kind of revisionist history. That's not the way it really happened. And so Jephthah sends back a message and tells him, no, the way it really happened was when the people of Israel came into this land, it was the Amorites, not the Ammonites, who held this land. And it was the Amorites that we defeated because God gave us that victory. And again, he recognized God was the one who gave the victory. God gave us that victory over the Amorites. As a matter of fact, we only entered that battle because the Amorites first attacked us. This was a just victory. This was a just battle that God gave to us. And this is ours. This doesn't belong to you. Well, the Ammonite king didn't agree with him. Uh, didn't see it his way. Saw it another way. And so he refuses uh, Jephthah's invitation for a peaceful exit. And then for the first time in the story in a while, we see the voice of God here. We see God's kind of active participation in the story again. It says, And the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. Jephthah is now being empowered. And, and as in past stories and judges, it seems like when they were empowered by the Spirit, there was some sense they knew that. They understood that now... God was now using them, leading them into what they were called to do. What's interesting, though, just before this, is Jephthah, when he responds to the Amorite, I mean Ammonite king about this story, he says, Now since the Lord God of Israel has driven the Amorites out before his people Israel, what right have you to take it over? Will you not take what your God Chemosh gives you? 
Likewise, whatever the Lord our God has given us, we will possess. See, again, he believes that God is the one who's going to bring victory. In the past, God brought victory. In the future, God's going to bring victory. Jephthah seems to get that. He, he believes God, the God of Israel exists. He believes power resides in the hands of the God of Israel. He believes the God of Israel is on their side and has blessed them in the past and will bless them in the future. So you see this sense of faith in him. But right beside it, then, you see, he seems to almost equate the God of Israel, Yahweh, with Chemosh, the God of the Ammonites. He says, just like our God gave us this land, your God gave you your land. So you keep your land because your God gave it to you. We keep our land because our God gave it to us. They're, they're almost equals, it seems, in his mind. And it was common in that day that most nations had their own patron gods. They're gods that were specifically caring for their nation, that their nation worshipped. And I don't think that Jephthah really recognized much of the difference between his god and their gods. But in fact, it was their god. He was the one who was going to reward them. And so again, he's empowered to go into this battle. The God he believes in has sent him into battle against the Ammonites. And so he does go, but right before he goes, we hear that vow, that really troubling vow. And it seems like Jephthah's doing what he did before. He's making sure his deal's secure. I, I think God can do it. I think God has the power to do it. I think God's done it before. I think God exists. I think God is on Israel's side. But will he choose to do it in this case? I think he trusts that God exists, that God had the power, but I'm not so sure he trusts in God's grace. Will God simply do it because God is good and good towards us, and especially good towards me? Will he really do it? So let's make it secure. And he makes a vow. He says, if you give the Ammonites into my hands... Whatever comes out the door of my house to, to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's, and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. Many said that they think he expected an animal to come out of the house when he got home from the battle. And it's possible, because it was not uncommon in that time that homes would have a place where animals were stored on the bottom floor and then people lived on the upper floor. So it's possible maybe he thought that, but it's strange wording. It's strange wording to say whatever comes out to meet me. It's almost like something's going to greet him. And it was just an odd way to talk about an animal. But maybe. But he makes this vow. There's no response to it. It's not a vow he's ever in any way encouraged to make, but he makes it. And then he goes out and he steps out in faith into battle. He does what God has called him to do and empowered him to do. He goes into battle against the Ammonites. They are defeated. And then he goes home. I think, in, I think in his battle, he fulfilled what Hebrews 11 will later talk about. Because he had faith. Because he believed in God, and he believed in God's promise to defeat the Ammonites. Through that faith, he attacked the Ammonites. He stepped into that uncertain place. Despite insurmountable odds, he walked in, and the Ammonites were defeated. I think it's why he's included in Hebrews 11. He is one of those that Hebrews 11 describes as they became powerful in battle and defeated foreign armies. He was one of those. Because of that act of faith, God accomplished a great thing and rescued his people. But I think we have a tendency sometimes to say, well, this means everything about them was good. 
everything about them was to be admired and emulated, and that's not really what's happening here, I, I think pretty clearly, not everything about Jephthah. And you see that in many of the other examples in Hebrews 11. Not everything about them was to be emulated just because they were people who, who in this situation acted in faith. And in Hebrews 11, we're all called as Christians to be people of faith, that we cannot live the Christian life without living a life of faith. It's required of us. And again and again in Hebrews 11, we're given examples of that. In that way, he's an example. But in some ways, he's sure not. Because the story goes on. He goes home, and who comes out to greet him first but his daughter? And we're made to feel how horrible this situation is, right? Because she doesn't just walk out the door. She walks out the door dancing to the tambourines. She is celebrating her father's victory. And then it's driven home. This is his only child. He doesn't have another son or a daughter, and I think it's implied he never will. This is his only child. His only child comes out, and when she finds out about the vow he made, this child cares about her father and says, no, you must keep that vow. Even if it means I'll be sacrificed, you have to keep the vow. I mean, you, you feel it like, oh, not only is this horrible, but man alive, this incredible daughter standing before him, that he has now made a commitment to give her life to the Lord. And the question that I think everybody asks in the face of this is, why doesn't God intervene and just stop this thing? Why not just stop it? Because this is horrible. It's a horrible story. Some argue that actually what happened was that he, he didn't give his daughter's life. They make that argument based on a couple of things in this passage. They say because she says in response that the one thing she asked for is two months to go around the countryside and to grieve with her friends the fact that she will never marry, that she's going to travel for two months and grieve that she'll never marry. And later when the vow is carried out, it says, and she was a virgin. And so they argue that actually what happened was that her life was not taken as a kind of answering of this vow, fulfilling of this vow. But she was simply dedicated to God's service at the sanctuary. So she would never marry. She would never have children. That she went on living and she was just dedicated to God's service. And it's, I understand their reasonings for arguing that. There are some problems, though, if you go that way. The problems are, he said, that whoever comes out and greets me will be given as a burnt offering. Burnt offering is not the same as just dedicating them to service in the sanctuary. And the other thing is the two-month reprieve she asked for. It doesn't make a lot of sense that she wanted two months to go grieve with her friends and then the vow be fulfilled because of all that was happening was she was just now going to stay unmarried. It's kind of odd I need two months to grieve that because what's going to go on is just what already is. You can keep grieving with me for the rest of my life over it if you want to. There's, there's not something that necessarily ended at the end of those two months. So I lean towards, I think actually her life was sacrificed. I think he fulfilled the vow and exactly what it looks like. But I understand the arguments for the other. I see why they make those arguments. Um, in either case, I don't think it was a vow that God asked for. I don't think it was anything God asked. And I think his daughter had to sacrifice much unbelievable in one case but again an awful lot in the other because of simply a rash vow of her father an unnecessary vow a vow that was made again to kind of negotiate something he didn't need to negotiate God never asked for the vow God is silent in response to it and if it was the taking of her life 
Passages like Deuteronomy 12 and Leviticus 18 tell us that that is something that is detestable to God. Human sacrifice, he clearly says in his word, he hates it. It is detestable. It is a horrible thing. It was never something that he would want done for him. So why is Jephthah offer it? Well, I think he probably offers it because of what we saw at the beginning. At the beginning of the story, what we saw was that the nation of Israel is worshiping the gods of their neighbors. They've been doing this for years and years. It's a pattern they've repeated again and again. And the Ammonite God and the Moabite God, at least those two, human sacrifices were part of their worship. And these were some of the gods that they had been worshiping for a long time. I don't think it's strange that he saw that as a way to show dedication to God, to try and appease a God so that a God would come through for you because it was part of their practice for a very long time. And so he practiced what he had come to believe and been taught probably. And even if it was just giving his daughter somehow to this service, Proverbs 20.25 says it is a trap to dedicate something rashly and only later to consider one's vows. And this clearly was a rash vow. He didn't really think it through well. He clearly regretted it when the time came. Matter of fact, if he'd really known God's word, if he, if he knew God's law, he would know in Leviticus 27, it actually had kind of an exception clause. That if you had dedicated someone to God's service, if you made this vow and then later regretted it, there was actually a way out. You could pay money to redeem them back and they wouldn't have to fulfill that vow. It was possible to do that because you weren't to do these things in some rash way. It was to be done only with careful consideration. And that wasn't the case here. I think Jephthah made this commitment because Jephthah really didn't know God's word very well. He may have had faith. It may have been sincere faith. But in many ways, he didn't know the God he was following. And I don't think the rest of Israel knew the God they were following very well at that point. It is one of the costs of again and again turning away from him to false gods. We simply don't know the God that we follow. So why didn't God intervene? Well, I don't have a simple answer for that. I don't know why in some cases he has, and in this case he didn't. But I would at least argue that, you know, in some ways he did. That God in his word does lay out what his will is. God had revealed to the people of Israel again and again what his will is. He has taught them. He has, re he has shown them. He has been with them. He has revealed to us again and again through his word and through his living word, who he is and what he calls us to do. He does reveal his will to us, and he did to them. But in many ways, they weren't listening. And the cost of turning away from God again and again, even though God mercifully intervened and released them from the oppression of these people who controlled them, there was still a cost to the fact that they had for so long moved away from God. And the cost was that they didn't know him well. The cost of forever turning away from him was that they lost intimacy with him. Not that God had moved from them, but they had continually moved away from him. And as a result, they just didn't know him very well. Sincere faith? I believe so. I think it's why he's included. But boy, lots of error, lots of misunderstanding, and even a lot that was actually destructive. And then when you get to the end of the story in chapter 12, so this long story finally ends in chapter 12. Ammonites are defeated. Uh, his vow is carried out with his daughter. And so now it's supposed to be, we've gone through A, B, C, D, E. Now E is supposed to be, there's ease in the land. Finally, things get good. But remember, things have been spiraling down and down and down. So this time, ease in the land doesn't look so great. 
This time, Jephthah now becomes the leader of Israel. We're told he only leads for six years, which was actually one of the shortest times that someone led who was a deliverer. So he only leads for six years. And during that time, we're told that there was a conflict that rose up within Israel. So Ephraim against the people of Gilead, led by Gilead is led by Jephthah, and the people of Ephraim get in this argument, they get in this fight, ends up in 42,000 of the people of Israel being killed by another group of the people of Israel. 42,000 of them in that period of time. So a period of ease, their oppressor, they were released from the control of their oppressors, but not real ease. This isn't a great story at the end. Again, because I think there's some cost of that distance. So this isn't a story that I can turn into a real happy ending. Uh, I think he's an example in some ways of faith in that moment that he went into battle, empowered by God, and he chose in the face of insurmountable odds to go and to fight and to see God bring victory. And God used that to do good for his people. But it's still a story, I think, of where there was much that was really damaging. Faith, but much that got in the way of that faith flourishing. And even led to these people of faith doing some pretty harmful and, I think, damaging things, as is often the story. The lesson from Jephthah, I think, is that he acted in faith, and when he did, some good things happened. I think the lesson of Jephthah is also, though, that there are some dangers that should be avoided if our faith is to flourish. So here are three of them, and I think all three of these you might look at from different angles, and they kind of overlap a lot. Maybe it's looking at one thing in some different ways. So the first danger I think we ought to be careful to avoid is the danger of syncretism. It's that taking things that are clearly incompatible with Christianity, of the beliefs and of the practices of our neighbors, taking those things and somehow incorporating them into our Christianity to the point that we actually start thinking they are Christian, to the point that we've actually come to see those things and say, you know, those come from God because we've we practice them so long, we've been around them so long, we start calling them Christian, even though they are clearly incompatible with the things God taught. We blend them in such a way. Um, what are our blind spots? We may not be committing human sacrifices, but the questions are, what are our blind spots? What are the things that we practice and we just have come to assume this is the right way to, to follow God? It's what he wants us to do, but we've never really searched and looked. Are you sure? Are those really consistent with his word and with the living word, his son, and what he's taught us? Do they really, should they be blended together? Uh, one of the common things said about the American church is that we ought to ask questions about the way we kind of deal with wealth and materialism. Maybe there's some questions we ought to ask there about the way we blended the teachings and practices of, the, of our neighbors, and we've somehow made them ours. Maybe we ought to ask some questions about it. Individualism. You know, Americans are known for our individualism. But again, have we sometimes begun reading Scripture through this lens that is more a kind of cultural lens than it is really what Scripture teaches? Again, should we ask? I'm not saying that we ought to completely separate ourselves from the culture around us. I think we, we are part of it. We need to enter into it. We need to have a voice in it. And we need to understand it so that we can have a voice in it. But there are times that the beliefs and practices of our neighbors are simply incompatible with the things of God? Do we have blind spots? Are there things that we need to ask and consider? Uh, one of the common things talked about is kind of American consumerism. 
we're a very consumer-oriented culture. And have we kind of brought some of that into the church in a way, in the way we practice our faith that maybe isn't compatible with the things of God? Nationalism, politics, some of the methods we use to influence people, um, moral practices, and the list could go on and on. Are there things we need to look at and say, man, is that really a Christian practice? Is that really a Christian way of thinking about it? Or has the influence of our neighbors somehow shaped my beliefs more than the Word of God? We ought to help each other look for those blind spots. I think there's, it is tempting to say, let's always look at the kind of new things that might be influencing us, the kind of current things, and we need to be careful about those things not sneaking in. But I would say, actually, we also need to be careful about past things, maybe about some of the things that most often sneak in are the things we've grown up with all our life, the things we've always believed and always practiced and been around others who have believed. Sometimes those are the things that have crept in and we've come to believe they are the truth because we've always heard them. But maybe we ought to take them through the lens of Scripture and make sure these are actually things that come from the teaching of God. So a second thing I think pretty closely related is idolatry. It's one of the things most talked about in Scripture, a danger we're warned against again and again. It's not just kind of meshing these things together, but it's literally saying I have a deep hunger and thirst and I'm just going to turn somewhere else. I'm just going to look someplace else for satisfaction. Uh, Throughout Scripture, idolatry is often talked about as this idea of um, creating another God that we feel like we have some power over that we feel like in some ways we manage and is in our hands rather than a God we depend upon. So some of the passages you see that in like Jeremiah 2. Jeremiah 2 where it talks about the fact, where Jeremiah talks about, you know, God is this living fountain, this pure, clear, living fountain that the water is always available to us. In Israel you've sinned because you've turned away from that living fountain to look elsewhere to have your, your thirst satisfied. But not only have you sinned because you've turned away, You've doubly sinned because you turned away from that and you chose instead a broken cistern. You dug out a place in the rock that would collect dirty rainwater and it's even cracked. It's even leaking. It's very temporary. It won't satisfy for long. It doesn't satisfy as well. And you choose to drink from that instead of drink from this. What could be more offensive to God than that? That you choose that why? Because we made it. We created it. It feels like somehow it's in our hands. And that's something about that is attractive to us, right? I want to believe there's something beyond me that can solve the problems I can't solve. But I kind of want that something beyond me to be under my control. That it will respond on demand. That it will be there when I want it. And it will be there in the way I want it. So let's create something beyond us that we create. That we manage and we're in control of. It's... It's craziness, but we all do it. And again, I mentioned before, one of my favorite passages in Scripture is Isaiah 44. And there I think it points out how crazy it is more than any place else in Scripture. Isaiah 44, he says, you know, you guys go out and you cut down this tree. And you cut the tree down, and then you take half the wood, and you burn the wood to heat your house, and you use the rest of the wood to cook your food. So, so you control the wood, right? You're using it as you want to use it. You're more powerful than it. Then you take the other half of that tree and you carve it into an image and you set it up on a shelf and you bow before it as if it somehow is beyond you. 
and has the power to do for you what you can't do for yourself. You, it's a fantasy. It's make-believe. We know we need something beyond ourselves, but we are so afraid of letting go of control, we actually create a God, our own, that is really just an extension of us, and then we bow before it, hoping it'll come through for us. And Isaiah says, it's crazy. It's just simply craziness. If you need help from a God who is beyond you, then he's beyond you. You don't control him. You don't manage him. That is the true God. But it's scary. And I see it in Jeff that it's scary. It's scary to depend upon somebody who truly, it's just by his grace that he comes through for me. And that wasn't like the other gods that they worship. The other gods, in some way, you had some control. You earned their response, or you appeased them, and then they came through for you. This idea I'm going to serve a God who comes through for me simply because he loves me, simply because he chooses to, that's wonderful. But that means the power is in his hands, and that's a little bit scary. Where do we turn to find life? What's our broken cistern that we run to to drink? to kind of fill those deepest needs that only God can fill. Good to ask ourselves the question once in a while. And then the third thing uh, that, again, I think kind of grows out of these two is the danger of just biblical ignorance, the danger of simply being ignorant of God's will. Um, you know, I think Jephthah got in trouble. I think people of Israel again and again got in trouble because they simply kind of knew just enough about God, just enough to believe, to have faith, but they kind of stopped there. I used the illustration once before in a sermon about how in premarital counseling, one of the things I often say to couples is, I wish I could tattoo the word curious on both of your foreheads. And the reason I wish I could do that is because for the rest of your marriage, I want you to be reminded of the fact you do not fully know this person in front of you. That no matter how much you think you've got them figured out, you don't completely have them figured out. There is more to learn and more to know, and you better be humble about that and understand that if you're going to love them well and if intimacy is going to grow. And one of the things I often say is, I have lived with me now for 58 years, and I don't get me a lot of times. I am truly confusing to me. There is much about me that I'm surprised by, sometimes in good ways, more often in bad ways. I'm surprised by how ridiculous it is to think that I fully know my wife that I have her all figured out. And one of the dangers we face in marriage is pretty quickly, we figure out a lot, right? Pretty quickly, I figure out quite a bit. I kind of know what's going to tick her off. I kind of know what's going to please her. You know, I kind of know how to work with her. I kind of know what not to talk about and what to talk about. I, I figure out a lot pretty quickly. And it's tempting to say, I figured out enough. And let's, for the rest of our marriage, live on that. It's less work. But intimacy kind of stops growing when we do that. We stop being curious. We stop knowing each other and understanding each other and loving each other even better and better because it stops right there. A tough story because I, say, I think we do the same thing with God all the time. We learn just enough, just enough, that we kind of think we got him figured out. We know what to do. We know what he expects. We know how to kind of manage him. We know how to kind of when to avoid him and when to turn to him. We got him figured out just enough. And then we live the rest of our Christian lives on just enough. And intimacy kind of dies, and we stop growing. And the relationship doesn't just stay there. I think it actually starts deteriorating if we live forever on just enough. It's not just enough. 
God has revealed himself to us in some remarkable ways. It's not that we will understand everything. We, we wait for that day Jesus returns and he will make known to us so much that we don't know now. But there is always in this life more to learn and more to know. We've never got him fear. I actually had a person one time come to me and tell me, a um, person who was involved in full-time Christian ministry, tell me they were going to this church and they said, well, I'm going to that church not because it's giving me anything. Because, you know, I'm really, I mean, didn't say it directly, but it was kind of saying because I'm, I'm way ahead of them. So they really don't have much to teach me. But I'm going to that church because I really feel like they need what I have to offer them. And as he was telling me that, I was like choking. I was like, well, I may have been arrogant enough to think that once in a while, but I would never actually say it out loud. Because <laughs> I know it's wrong. I know it's simply not true. That... We always have more to learn from one another, from the Word of God, from His living Word, from His example in Jesus Christ that He's given us that we might know Him. We're never done learning. And if we stop, I think a lot of times we get in trouble. Some pretty ugly things happen in the name of faith because we stopped. We thought we had God figured out. We, we arrogantly move as if we know all the answers, and we stop growing, and we stop learning. And we stop being the people that we could be. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your grace. I thank you that we serve a God who is sufficient, who is powerful, a God who is merciful, a God who intervenes when we don't deserve it, who lifts us up sometimes, Father, when we're doing everything we can to make ourselves fall. I'm thankful that we serve a loving God and a compassionate God and a gracious God. Father, I pray that you would help us to to understand that more and more. To not wait until desperate times to turn to you, but to turn to your grace and to cling to it, Father, every moment of every day. I pray that we would learn even more and more that your grace truly is sufficient for us. In your blessed name, amen.